Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. Today is episode number 11, The Practical Meaning of Economic Equality. And with me is Luke Thompson, political consultant and history buff. If there's anything about electoral history he doesn't know, it isn't worth knowing. Luke. Well, today we get to undertake one of the great exercises in America, in American campaign rhetoric. Yes. Truly, in, in terms of purely political speeches, in, in the sense that they're purely campaign speeches, this may be the most important ever given. I can't think of another that really rivals it um, and, and I've spent a lot of time trying to come up with one. The Cross of Gold speech is of all things a speech about money but it's a speech about so much more than that and it's a speech that comes from a world that is rapidly passing away but at the same time in its – in the throes of change is creating for the American system, fundamental challenges to the institutional array and the uh, the non-governmental or non-constitutional but nonetheless essential institutions that have kept American liberty going, rebuilding it out of the Civil War and pushing it forward. It is a fight that divides uh, both of the two main political parties that brings about the end of the Civil War generation's dominance of American politics and ushers it into the 20th century and the age of mass industrialization and all of the, the social and political and economic challenges that come with that. It is also in many respects an antiquarian speech. It's, it's on the day it's given anachronistic in many respects. It's given by Williams, William Jennings Bryan, the great prairie populist of Nebraska. A four-time presidential candidate, I think, or maybe five. Uh, well, three times he got the nomination. The nomination right. Uh, Secretary of State, defender uh, of um, the teaching of creationism at the Scopes Monkey Trial towards the end of his life. One of truly the most interesting and, and certainly a unique figure in American politics. Um, far more important in his effect on the country than most of the people who – or many of the people who became president uh, instead of him during this period. 
um, and also someone for whom the moral cause of the common man uh, beat loudly in his breast and guided him often to disastrously misguided conclusions. Um, if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, uh, William Jennings Bryan trod it with, with aplomb. And we see a lot of those at work in the cross of gold speech. We also see brilliant American rhetoric about what it is to be a republic, what it is to be a government of, for, and by the people, and uh, tremendous religious iconography and symbolism that resonates in the hearts, resonated in the hearts of Bryan's listeners. Who was William Jennings Bryan, and why does he care so much about whether the money is backed by gold, by gold and silver, or by paper itself? Well, William Jennings Bryan was uh, born in southern Illinois. Uh, he was a lifelong Democrat. His father had been in local Democratic politics. Uh, his ideal was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, when he was an adult, he would give strangers a, a volume of Jefferson's greatest hits. This was like his favorite thing and he, he would pass this out to people he met. Uh, he moved as a young man to Nebraska and that is where he made his career as a lawyer and as a politician. And he wins office at a time when a new third party is arising in, in the Plain States but also elsewhere in the United States. And this is the populist party. Now, there is the populist party. There are also people in the two major parties who sympathize with it. Brian is in the latter category. Uh, he's never formally a populist. He always stays within the Democratic Party, but he's very much a populist and an exponent of their views. And the, the view that he first takes up and that will propel him to his first uh, presidential nomination, uh, spearheaded by the Cross of Gold speech, is about the currency and about the money supply. It is an inflationist uh, principle. It's a principle designed to relieve farmers and others who are struggling with debt. Uh, it is a principle that Brian and other exponents of it believe is aimed at big money men who are manipulating the market not only in currency but in everything else and the name of it is free silver. America is on – has been on a gold standard since the administration of Ulysses Grant. Uh, gold, uh, its, its proponents said a gold standard is a good thing because it's stable. It's beyond the control of politicians and it gives us a currency that is good as gold, a currency that can be trusted and that can't be monkeyed with by politicians. The critics of the gold standard said, well, yeah, that's great, but it's also uh, deflationary. It puts burdens on the little guy, often the little guy who is in debt and struggling to pay off a mortgage or uh, outlays he has made in order to keep his small business or especially his farm going. It would be better if the currency were loosened either by uh, printing paper money or by coining silver freely. Now, silver is also a precious metal, but it is at that time more common than gold. There have been silver strikes in the American West and Brian and others 
see what they call the free and unlimited coinage of silver as a way to loosen the money supply and to make life easier across the board for the little guy, especially farmers. Are there more of the little guy now uh, or is it that all of the little guys have more debt now than they used to? Well, there there are lots of little guys. There are many more farmers, many more farmers than, than there are now and uh, a lot of them are in debt partly because there are so many farmers. I mean they are competing with each other and therefore uh, driving down the prices of, of, of their crops for all of them. Uh, and this is uh, – you know, this is a problem. Uh, there's also uh, world markets now. I mean, there always have been, but advances in transportation make make them uh, uh, readier of access. So American farmers are are competing with uh, farmers in what's now the Soviet Union, uh, farmers around the world, and and that is an additional burden on them and their their efforts. And politically speaking, bimetallism is a is a great threat to the Republican coalition of veterans of the of the the Union Army, the Grand Army of the Republic, uh, supporters of the tariff, and um, supporters of the gold standard. Because you have this tension um, with all of these retired or veterans who have taken a land allotment out west and gone and become farmers, gone into debt. And the political economy of agriculture is starting to cut against whatever bonds of affection might have previously existed for the Republican Party as the party that defeated the Confederacy. And so Brian as a Democrat is able to appeal to these folks on pocketbook grounds. Um, what is the state of – who? I mean who is in the Democratic Party when Brian emerges on the stage? The old Confederacy is obviously still Democratic. Yes. It's run under one party rule. The old yes. confederacy isn't enough to, to carry the day but they do win the presidency intermittently. Who are well, the Democrats? Well, they haven't uh, – yeah, they, Grover Cleveland uh, won with, with that support. It was, it was the base of any Democrat running for the presidency and he mm -hmm. pulls it off twice. And Hayes had to cheat. And, Hay <laughs> and Hayes had to cheat. Well, uh, right. Uh, another element in the Democratic co coalition is uh, – urban machines in many of the great cities. Not all of them. There are also Republican urban machines. But uh, New York, the largest city in the country, that is Tammany Hall. Uh, that's, that's become the classic icon of all such machines and the model for, for how they all worked. And there were, there were various others uh, scattered throughout the country. Um, often Irish Americans uh, are – part of the Democratic coalition because there's a kind of crusading uh, Protestant caste to abolition and a lot of other moral reform programs which tended to be embraced first by Whigs then by the Republican Party itself. And you know, Irish Catholics who were often <laughs> the target of some of these right. moralizing programs naturally became Democrats. Uh, Small farmers in many parts of the country are also democratic. This was – these were um, uh, the roots of Brian himself. That was the kind of town that he grew up in in southern Illinois and uh, you know, and so on and so on throughout the nation. And, and these people are being integrated into a party apparatus that functions how? It, they're not buying television ads because it's you – know, there's no such thing as television. You know, you're, they're not – 
They're not just holding fundraisers. How how are the political parties? How do they work? How do they work? Well, there are uh, parties in each state. Uh, Democrats and Republicans each will have an organization in every single state. Uh, there's often lots of jockeying uh, among them to see who gets to run the organization in a particular state for all sorts, all the reasons, you know, personal rivalries, ambition, some ideology in the mix, all the rest of it. Every four years, uh, they get together in national conventions to pick a presidential candidate. And what we have to realize is that the struggle that we now have uh, that is conducted in um, in you know road shows of candidates, early presidential debates, which have already begun now. We just had the fourth one on the Democratic side, and then caucuses, and then primaries. All that happened at the national convention. It was all compressed into this meeting of people from around the country, and they would you know over multiple ballots they would pick a candidate, and sometimes it would only take one or two days, sometimes it, it could drag on seemingly forever. But that whole calendar that we're so used to, uh, there's no Iowa caucus then, there's no New Hampshire primary. It all happens at the great national conventions which occur every four years. And, and those con conventions will pick the nominee and if the nominee wins, then the nominee will be responsible for dispensing vast numbers of patronage Rewards. jobs. Yeah, yes. He will reward his followers. I read somewhere that in either 1896 or 1900, when McKinley is elected, he has 96,000 appointments just in the post office. Right. And this is even after civil service reform right. begins. You right. know, but there's still, still a lot of jobs to hand out. So, so that makes Brian a particular – given that people's livelihoods and political operatives existence, you know, people like me back then, there were a lot more of us and we weren't just you know, doing math or cutting ads. Uh, they were – you know, running wards, handling sort of the welfare needs of everyday citizens, surveying land, being postal operators, et cetera. You can still do that here in Manhattan if you serve on the Board of Elections, by the way. But um, the – to be a Democrat is to be integrated into a machine nationally or at least a coalition of state party machines that distributes a tremendous number of goods to all manner of people. And yet in 1892, Brian, though running as a Democrat, endorses – this nascent populist party's presidential candidate. If we think back to say 2016, this would have been the equivalent of someone endorsing Jill Stein, Jill Stein over Hillary Clinton or um, you know Evan McMullen over Donald Trump, and then four years later becoming the nominee of the party. It seems almost unimaginable today, and it would have been, I think, fair to say, even more unimaginable then. So how is it that? that Brian not only manages to endorse the populist, not the Democrat, but get elected as a Democrat and then come to dominate the Democratic Party four years later? Well, it's, it's an almost hostile takeover of the Democratic Party. Uh, one thing that is indispensable for this to work is there is a terrible economic depression after Grover Cleveland gets elected president the second time. And then people squabble about why this happened. Supporters of the gold standard say, well, this happened because you know, Congress was making some compromises with the silver people and that, that messed everything up. And then supporters of free silver say, oh, well, of course this happened because we we're still wedded to this terrible gold, gold standard. So you know, they're going at it that way. But the man who gets the blame is the man who is the president at the time you know, and 
We, we credit our presidents with good economic news and we blame them for bad economic news even though they very often had very little to do with either one. But Grover Cleveland gets it in the neck and he is a pro-gold standard Democrat. He's a strong gold bug, right? Strong gold bug, yes. And that is a big – that is a blow to him and that is a blow to all similarly minded people in his party. So there is certainly the potential for a great shift within Democratic ranks. Brian is very aware of this. Uh, he takes steps before the 1896 convention. He has been a congressman. He's been serving in the House. He hoped to get elected to the Senate but the state legislature of Nebraska uh, was won by the Republicans and in those days state legislatures still picked our senators. So he, he missed out on that chance. But he spends his free time before the 1896 convention. He spends it networking. Uh, he is offered the opportunity to be the favorite son of Nebraska. This is something I still remember from my youth. It persisted as late as that. Conventions would have favorite sons. Mm -hmm. you know, and what those were, they were sort of political placeholders which would allow the state delegation to make a bargain with the eventual victor. You know, here's our favorite son, meaning he'll hold all our votes until we get the best deal and then we'll give them to you know, the winner and then we'll get rewarded for doing that. Bob Dole served this function for Kansas for many years but it also helped that he ran the Senate Republican caucus. Right, right. So Brian is offered to be the favorite son from Nebraska. He turns it down. He's not interested in that. He wants the whole thing. Uh, he goes to the pub populist party and you know, which is already existing as a third party and he urges them to hold their convention after the Democrats have held theirs because he doesn't want the populists to have already picked someone, someone who is not William Jennings Bryan. He wants them to have their nomination open so that they can cross-endorse whoever the Democrats pick and he intends that the Democrats will pick him. And he gets up on stage and he begins to speak and I think Brian's manner of speaking would surprise a lot of people. Um, Hollywood movies have convinced everyone I think in America that all former politicians were baritones with rousing oratory where in fact – uh, you know, Lincoln had a reedy and high-pitched voice, and and Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, you know Puritan minister, barely spoke above a whisper when he was reading "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" to his to his uh, congregation. How was Brian as an orator? Brian had a very musical voice, a very far-reaching voice. There was a, a, an occasion where his wife accompanied him out of town to a speech he was giving, and I guess she was out of sorts so she wasn't in the hall but she heard him from several blocks away giving his speech. So you know, it was powerful but it was not uh, – it was not rhetorical. He didn't, he didn't seem to be performing. His style of address was plain and it struck people as very personal. It was as if he was speaking to you even though there might be hundreds or thousands of people in the room. He was addressing – it was as if he was addressing each one of them individually. Uh, it was a musical voice. It was a pleasing voice. Uh, he also early on at this period of his life, he still has all his hair. I mean most of the photographs we see of him, he's like, like balding in the middle and then you, know, you get to productions of um, 
uh, of the play about the Snopes trial mm-hmm. and you know and he sees entirely bald but no he's 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 got his his dark hair and and he's 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 a good looking guy and he's young he's also he, not fat yet he no he's young. not fat yet he is young he has just passed the constitutional minimum to enable you to be present president he's still in his mid 30s so when he gets up to the podium now he's giving a speech on a debate over the uh, money plank of the party platform. Uh, the, the committee voted to have a free silver plank but the gold people were numerous enough to write a minority report. Therefore, there would be a debate on the convention floor and Brian has very clever, cleverly uh, finagled to get the last slot. He will be the last speaker of the five who are going to debate this issue. There will be two pro-silver, the lead-off and the conclusion three gold bugs in the middle, Brian maneuvers to be the second and concluding pro-silver uh, orator, speaker. So, And when he gets up to give this speech, he takes the stairs two at a time. Someone describes him as looking like a boxer, like a prize fighter. So he's young, he's athletic, you know, he's pretty good looking, he has this wonderful instrument and then he proceeds to give this uh, historic speech. It's as if events sort of break his way. I mean the, in retrospect, the stupidest thing the gold bug Democrats could have done was dispute the free silver plank because it gave Brian an opportunity to take the whole enchilada. That's right. <laughs> uh, McKinley, by the way, is being told by a Republican operative from Nebraska who knows Brian. He's being told if Brian gets a chance to speak, he will be the nominee. You know, watch out for this guy. If he gets the chance to address the convention, they're going to nominate him for president. Is is he a is he a unique political force within the convention? That is to say, does he see a coalition that no one else sees, or is it merely his unique rhetorical talent that carries the day for him? The latter. The coalition is there. Uh, the champion of it is is an older politician named Richard Bland. Uh, from Missouri. His nickname is Silver Dick Bland because he's been you know, pro-silver and very zealously so for many years. So uh, had Brian not spoken, he would almost certainly have been the nominee instead. That's the man that William McKinley, the Republican nominee, expects to be his opponent. So it's, it's the second option you said. Brian takes a force that is there and he puts himself at the head of it. And he's He's joined by a pretty motley group of people in defending silver. It's it's not the sort of folks that you would want to run into in a dark alley. Oh, the first the first silver speaker, uh, the leadoff, is is an awful man, uh, Senator Ben Tillman from South Carolina, and he got his start in politics by murdering black Republicans. You know, which he was proud of. I mean, he boasted about this throughout his throughout his career. He, he's a terrorist. That that was the Democratic base in the South in those days. Uh, he was described at the convention as looking like a train robber. <laughs> uh, people booed his speech because it was just so over the top and so aggressive. So uh, Brian was you know, a relief after this guy and then a couple – one of the gold people gave a very good speech. Brian conceded that but then the other two were quite, were quite boring. So you know, Brian is, is, is a relief after these four mostly not good uh, predecessors. 
sort of reminds me like if you go watch a minor league baseball game, you can tell who the, the guy is who they're priming to go up to the major leagues because he's just better than everybody right. else. Yeah. Um, so what does he say? Well, uh, the speech is, is 20 minutes long and it is a, a paean to the cause of free silver. Some of it is a very aggressive attack on the cities of the East, which is kind of unwise because one of the Democratic Party's most effective machines is Tammany Hall in New York, the largest city in the United States. But uh, Brian says, you know, we've been told uh, by, the, by the gold bugs addressing this issue that uh, the great cities of America do not want free silver. But if you uh, destroy the cities and leave the farms, the cities will spring up again like magic. But if you leave the cities and destroy the farms, every city in this country will, will wither away. I mean he's really saying to the cities, you don't count. You're, you're just an extra. You're, a, you're, a, you're an epiphenomena. You're an option. You know, it's the farms that are the backbone, the heartland, what really counts. It, it's a very aggressive passage. The most famous passage, the one that gives the speech its name, is at the very end. Uh, he says, you shall not press down on the brow of mankind this cross of thorns. You shall not crucify him, uh, this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify him on this cross of gold. And when he said that, he mimed both those things. Kind of rare for him. He didn't do a lot of gestures. But when he spoke of the crown of thorns, he drew his fingers across his forehead like blood dripping down and when he said cross of gold, he stretched out his arms. And at first he thought he'd bombed because it was silence. You know, and he thought, oh my God, I bombed. And then the roof just blew off. I mean people who heard it, they said it was like Niagara Falls. It was like artillery. It was just this explosion of sound, people cheering and screaming and laughing and weeping and you know, just taken out of themselves. They were simply taken out of themselves. And you can see it. I mean, this is an overwhelmingly uh, Christian audience. Um, many uh, churches that have uh, emotional forms of worship. Charismatic practices. Charismatic. Uh, Brian has tapped into that. He's, he's a Presbyterian, a devout Presbyterian all his life. But uh, he, he's, you know, he is mainlining this biblical imagery. That's how he ends it and that's what gives the speech its name. But that's not why I thought it was worthy of commemoration. I thought there was a better part of the speech and Brian himself thought so. He said the best paragraph of the speech came earlier on and it, it began by saying we have too much restricted the definition of a businessman. You know, he's really addressing his gold bug opponents who are saying, the silver standard would be bad for business. Business doesn't like it. Brian says we have too much restricted the definition of the businessman. And then he goes on to say the man who is employed for wages is as much a businessman as his employer. And I thought this is worth the whole speech. You know, here it is. This is something very American. This is a statement of so much of what we've been talking about in earlier podcasts about equality as being an essential facet of liberty and here it is stated in economic terms. Now, he's not saying 
I want to give the man who's employed all the money that his employer owns. He's not, not coming out for no. He's not coming out for redistribution. He's not being a socialist, but he's saying these two men are equal, and we must think of them as equal. We must give equal weight to the manhood, to the personhood of both the employer and the employee, and we must never lose sight of that. And then, and then in the paragraph, he has other, you know, other pairs that he um, equates. But, but that lead sentence, I thought, really sums it all up. And, and Brian himself thought so. He thought that was the best paragraph I wrote. He wrote it the night before. You know, the rest of the speech was things he'd used in other speeches earlier, but that was something he wrote the night before. Might be quintessential uh, for American political rhetoric for someone to get carried around on the shoulders of the conventioneers for saying one thing, but really believing the message is another thing. But um, so, what? What? Be there was never a President William Jennings Bryan. What becomes of his race against McKinley? He loses. Why does he lose? And then, what is the durable legacy of Bryanism? Well, he he does very well. He gets more votes than any other man has ever gotten. But McKinley got still more. Uh, McKinley ran a great campaign, very effective. Uh, they both ran great campaigns, very different though. Brian barnstormed the country. Uh, he, he, he took trains all around. You know, finally, the Democratic Party got him his own private car. He was like buying his own train tickets for a while. But he, he traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles and gave this speech over and over again. McKinley stayed home. But he spoke to thousands of people because they were brought to his home. The Republican Party had a very uh, well-oiled apparatus that brought delegations of people from all over the country and they would come to Canton, Ohio. They would take the train in. They would march uh, down the street to McKinley's home. They would hear his, his speech. You know, then they would leave. Then the next group would come. So the, the two of them end up probably addressing equal, equal numbers of people in different fashions. And the Republicans, um, you know, who raised more, much more money, put out lots of campaign literature. I think the final figure was fourteen pieces of literature for every uh, American. I mean, they they really, you know, they swamped the country. So it's a robust mail program. It right was a there. robust mail program, and they there was there was also a, a little economic um, uh, twist in the home stretch. Uh, there was bad harvests in the grain-producing countries that we competed with, which raised the price of our own grain. This was a point McKinley had been making. He'd been saying, look, the gold standard or the silver standard is not going to affect competition from around the world. You're still going to have to deal with that. And then, you know, this shortfall elsewhere raised our own prices. You know, and Brian, how could he explain that? He thought, you know, it was all the gold standard and people manipulating the money supply that, that screwed farmers, but here suddenly they're getting a benefit from something he hasn't anticipated. So, uh, so McKinley does win. Brian will will get two more nominations, uh, never win himself, but uh, he certainly he certainly energized uh, thousands of people who supported him. He got a huge amount of mail during this campaign. He and his wife couldn't keep it all, but they kept quite a bit. And uh, you know, scholars who have who have read through it, who've gone through it, it's a it's a moving experience. There are lots of Americans who felt, as did the people in the audiences that Brian addressed, 
that he was speaking directly to them and directly about them. And that, I think, is, is the final residue and the final value of the Cross of Gold speech. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.